following audio is from the Anglican Church, Caroline Springs. For more information about the church, go to taccs.org.au. Hey, uh, I want to welcome you here this morning. Um, if you're new or visiting, my name's Jonathan, I'm the pastor here, and it's just really good to be with you this morning. We're kind of coming to the end of a big journey that we've been on for 21 weeks now, 21 uh, services, uh, coming to the end of the 12th chapter of John. And uh, actually, we got to the end last week. We're going to recap those 12 chapters this morning. And I thought it was important for us to do that. After being such a long time in these 12 chapters, I thought it would be good for us just to, to go back over where we've come from. If you're new or visiting, this would be a chance to get a summary of the first 12 chapters of John, and um, if you've been around for a while, it's an opportunity to ask some of the questions that may have been um, raised over these last 20-something weeks. Um, and so we'll do that at the end of the message this morning. We'll take a, a bit of Q&A. Um, so if there's anything that, um, that has come up that's confusing, anything you disagree with, anything that you've maybe been wrestling with in your small groups, um, something even that you've perhaps read in the last week um, coming up to this recap, then feel free to uh, ask that. I'm going to send Gino around with the handheld mic so that everyone can uh, hear, hear your question. And um, it should be a lot of fun because I'm currently on just under three hours of sleep and so anything could happen. Um, anything could happen. So let's just see how it goes. Now's the chance. If you want to make me look stupid, now is your chance, all right? So... Um, the, the big theme, as you can see on the artwork um, through this series, is, has been, who is Jesus? That's been the question that we've been asking. Who is Jesus? And we've divided the book up into the two halves that John divides it into. It's, it's a pretty simple book in its outline. Uh, two halves, chapter 1 to 12 is the first half, Jesus teaching, Jesus miracles. And then the last half, chapter th- uh, 13 to 21, is Jesus last week. Um, going up to his death. So John gives that a lot of time because that's the most important thing he can talk about, uh, just as it, as it is for us as well. So um, we've done the first half now. We'll do the second half next year leading into Easter, starting in February 2015. So in the first half, we've been asking the question, who is Jesus? And you'll notice that the, the question assumes that Jesus existed. The, 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 the theme of the servants... Uh, of the uh, series hasn't been, is Jesus, right? That hasn't been our theme, is Jesus? Um, because Jesus has, has been 100% certifiably confirmed to be a man who really existed in real time and space, first century Jerusalem. There isn't one reputable scholar or academic today in existence who doubts that Jesus was a man. So if anyone tries to tell you that, you, you can laugh at them and, and, and then give them the 3,000 reasons why that's dumb, okay? Um, now the question is not, is Jesus? The question is, who is Jesus? If he was a man in the first century, as everyone agrees, then who, who was he? And it's an important question because no other man has had a bigger impact on human history than Jesus. Which is weird. If he's the son of a carpenter in an obscure, born in an obscure little town 2,000 years ago, before the internet, before worldwide communications, before anything like that, why is he the most famous person who's ever lived? 
Why have billions of people given their lives to following him? And to more than that, to worshipping him? That's the question. And through the centuries, people have had many different answers to that question. So even in Jesus' day, we've seen through John, some people think he's a liar. Some people think he's a a madman. Some people think he's demon-possessed. Other people worship him. And it's been that way ever since, the last 2,000 years. And in modern scholarship, you'll see a lot of people coming out, or just in modern-day culture, you'll see a lot of people coming out with different answers to that question. So uh, people like Gandhi, people like most of the people who live around in your neighbourhood will identify him as a good moral teacher, a good example, a profound, eloquent teacher, but nothing more than that. And we discussed through this series that that really is the only thing you can't say about Jesus. That if he calls himself God, if he promises eternal life to those who believe in him, then he can't be a moral teacher, only a moral teacher. He can't be a good teacher. He's a liar or he's God. Right? So we've discussed that view. Um, Others have called him insane. Um, I I read a a whole book on Jesus written by a, a, a doctor of psychology and he um and he and he gave various lines of evidence as to why jesus was the most mentally healthy person in human history if you read what jesus says if you recall that his teaching that has become kind of idiomatic in our culture today that people who don't even believe in jesus will quote him none of it sounds like the teachings of a madman he is imminently sane. And so we've kind of gone through the process through the book of John because John offers these lines of evidence, these different opinions about who Jesus is, and just logically, with pure logic, we've deduced that Jesus can only be who he said he was. There isn't really any other option. And so you're left with a choice either to accept that or reject that. And that's what people did from Jesus' day until now. It's, it's illustrated in his death on the cross. Two thieves at the side of him. Very similar men in very similar situations. One curses him and condemns him. The other one asks if he could come into his kingdom, if he could accept him as a follower, as a worshipper. And so that's the question that has been put before us week in and week out in this series. You must make your decision. Jesus doesn't allow fence-sitting. Every verse of John John is going up to people on the fence and pushing them off. He will not accept fence-sitting. He will not accept agnosticism. And so this morning, I'm just going to lay the same thing before you and hopefully corral you into either reaffirming your decision to acknowledge Jesus as God or reject Him. And we would rather you walk out of here rejecting Jesus and cursing Him than leaving sitting on the fence. So John helpfully in his book outlines for us the purpose of his book. And so the who is Jesus thing wasn't a clever thing we came up with. It's the thing that John describes as the whole purpose for his writing of the gospel. And so you can take many different people's uh, opinion about who Jesus is. You can read historians or philosophers or theologians about who they believe Jesus is. But today we're going to go to an eyewitness not a scholar, not a, 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 a modern-day critic, but one of Jesus' closest friends 
and an eyewitness to the things that are written about Jesus in the Gospels. We're going to go to John. John uh, is revealed in all four Gospels as one of Jesus' three best friends. He's in the inner sanctum along with Peter and James. And he has the the most up-close look at who Jesus is and what he's done. And his Gospel differs quite a lot from uh, what are called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, which are very similar. John is quite different. For example, John doesn't include any of the parables of Jesus. He isn't interested as much in Jesus' teaching uh, in, in terms of what his followers ought to do or how they ought to behave. He doesn't include the Sermon on the Mount as Matthew does in chapter 6 and 7. He's much more interested in who Jesus is. And so he includes much more about what Jesus says about himself. If you look, if you have a red letter Bible, wherever the, the letters are read, the words of Jesus in the book of John, he's normally talking about himself. He's normally revealing who he is. And that's John's purpose. We read in John 20, verse 30 and 31, where he says, Jesus did many other signs, that's his word for miracles, many other signs that are not included in this book. So I saw heaps of other stuff. I didn't include it here. These signs are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the Greek word for Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in believing, you would have faith in his name. So that's John's purpose. And that's why his book could be called, Who is Jesus? And why our sermon series has been called, Who is Jesus? And so what I want to do this morning is just very simply take us back through where we've been in chapter tw- uh, 1 to 12. And we're going to look at the seven signs that Jesus performs, seven miracles, very briefly at each one. Just say a word or two about each one. Hopefully it jogs your memory. Uh, If you haven't been here, go onto our website and you can get all of the audio content. Um, Seven signs of Jesus. And then we're going to look at five of the seven I am statements of Jesus. The other two happen in the the last half of the book, so we won't look at them because we haven't got there yet. But we'll look at the first five of seven I am statements. You remember these statements that Jesus says? Like, I am the good shepherd. Um, I am the door. Uh, I am, he says later in chapter 14, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Right? So these statements that Jesus says, which we'll see in a minute, have a profound, profound, deep um, double meaning that you might not get if you just read them on the surface as a 21st century Australian. Okay? So we'll get in that, into that in just a second. And I'm hoping that in going through Jesus' signs and then what he said about himself, John's plan for his whole book would come true for us this morning. That we would see these signs that John has recorded, that we would hear what Jesus says about himself and understand that he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is God in human flesh. All right, So let's pick it up. Uh, if you want to, you can jump around in your Bibles um, and try and uh, keep up as we go along. I'll be jumping around quite a bit. Um, if you don't own a Bible, we'll take that one home with you. That's our gift to you. Otherwise, Everything will be on the screen that you need to read. And in fact, I'll probably just read off the screen as well to make it a little more simple. Okay, so seven signs of Jesus. Let's go. You ready? All right, let's go. Um, First sign that he uh, performs, the first miracle, is in John uh, chapter 2. And so this is where he turns water into wine, 2, 1 to 11. And I'll read for you uh, verse 11. John says, Jesus did this as the first of his miraculous signs in Cana of Galilee. 
in this way he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So in performing this miracle, in in turning hundreds of litres of water that was held in these ceremonial uh, flasks, stone jars, that were used for ceremonial washing um, according to Jewish tradition, in turning that water into wine, Jesus, John says, revealed his glory. He revealed his power, his majesty. He revealed his godness, is another way of saying it. And his disciples believed in him. That's all they needed to see. And we saw in this week that um, this miracle, this sign, did more than just reveal his glory as God who can create out of nothing. This is, in essence, a work of creation. The creator God at work, turning water into wine. We do it over many months or years. He did it like that. Um, But it was more than that. He was demonstrating a very important message that the Jews of the time would have picked up on in that he had taken something that was used for ritual and rite and religion and he turned it into wine which was symbolic of God's favour and his presence and his closeness of relationship. You'll see that metaphor used throughout the Old Testament. And so this was a powerful symbol beyond the miracle itself. This was Jesus saying, I am replacing worthless, ritualistic religion of washing and all these things that you've gotten into with God's relationship, his presence among you, the joy of knowing God, not just performing acts that you think might earn you favor with God. Do you get that? That's profound. There's two two layers there, and both of them are very profound, and it caused his disciples to believe in him. All right, that's one down. We'll go to number two. This is the healing of the official's son. So I'm going to read, uh, this is in chapter 4, I'll read verse 49 through 53. This is uh, the official who comes to Jesus in desperation, his son's about to die. So the official said to him, come down before my child dies. Jesus told him, go home, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and set off for home. Then the father realized that it was the very time Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed along with his entire household. Jesus did this as his second miraculous sign when he returned from Judea to Galilee. Jesus uh, not only, and this you see this through the, all of the Gospels, not only performs signs and miracles in the flesh before people's eyes, but also from great distance. And so here I think he's demonstrating this is not some kind of magic trick or this is not some kind of psychosomatic healing. You'll see skeptics often talking today about uh, when people are prayed for and they're healed, they'll say it's a psychosomatic thing. The, the disease was just in their mind and and the, and the sort of hypnosis of being prayed for by a charismatic person has caused that disease to leave their mind and so they can walk again or whatever. Psychosomatic healing. There is no chance that that is the case here. The boy didn't know he was being prayed for by Jesus. There was no sense that he was being overwhelmed by Jesus' charisma. It was simply Jesus declaring the boy to be healed from a distance. This man figures out, hey, my son was healed and it happened just when Jesus said it would happen. So in response to Jesus' sign, he believes and his whole household believes that Jesus is who he says he is. The function of the signs, as John interprets them, 
is being worked out in people's existence. First his disciples, now even those who have perhaps never heard from him or met him before. That's sign number two. Number three, you've got the healing at the pool of Bethesda. So this is chapter 5 and verse 16 to 18, I'll read. Now because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, that is healing people on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began persecuting him. Uh, I should say, by the way, I'm sorry, um, I'm using a translation here that's different from the one in the pews. That was just an error in me uh, putting the electronic Bible in. So um, I, I still think this is the best one, the ESV. I think this might be NIV, but it's all God's word, all right? So, um, so he told them, my father is working until now, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jewish leaders were trying even harder to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. And so here you have coming together the signs of Jesus and the words of Jesus, both pointing to the deity of Jesus. People will argue today that though Jesus performs signs that suggest he may have divine power of some kind, he never, he never himself claimed to be God. You'll hear this from modern cynical scholars You'll also hear this from guys coming on your door and, and knocking on it, right? JWs, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. Jesus never actually claimed what you claim to believe. He never claimed to be God himself. John, on just about every page, emphatically disagrees with them, okay? And they will have different translations of the Bible based on very poor Greek translations and favorable translations of their own theology that will try and twist it another way. But if you look at it plainly and simply, you'll see here... The Jewish leaders who are his biggest opponents, bigger opponents than Mormons and JWs even, know exactly what Jesus is saying about himself. They get it exactly, all right? So even his greatest opponents want to persecute him not only because he's healing people on the Sabbath, something he did to provoke a reaction from them, but also because he is uh, calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. This is another thing that the JWs will say. They'll say, well, Jesus did say he was the son of God, but that's not the same as calling yourself God. That's, you know, he's the son of God. He's the first creation of God. He's less than God. Um, Mormons will say this as well. But the Jewish leaders of the day knew that the son of God was a title that made Jesus equal with God. In calling himself the Son of God, he was saying, me and God are of the same substance. Like my son Judah, seven, eight months now, he is of my substance. I didn't make him, I begat him. C.S. Lewis said, a man makes a car, he begets a son. That's the difference. Jesus, the Son of God, isn't made by God, he's begotten of God. If you remember the early creeds, they make this point emphatically. In saying that he's the son of God, he makes himself equal with God. And that is why the Jewish leaders killed him for blasphemy, for, for calling himself God in human flesh. So more fuel there for you to uh, share with your Jehovah's Witness friends. So, we've got water into wine, healing of the official son, healing at the pool of Bethesda, and then the feeding of the 5,000. Remember this one? I wasn't here. Um, but I think this might have been the bishop who brought this word to us from memory. So we're in chapter 6 now, and uh, I'll read verse 14. Now when the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus performed, that is feeding 5,000 men, probably 15,000, 20,000 people, they began to say to one another, 
this is certainly the prophet who is to come into the world. This is where Jesus' fame starts to grow exponentially from here to his death. He feeds this many people, it's hard to hide anymore. Okay? He keeps withdrawing from the crowds. He's not trying to get famous. He's not trying to start a whole big new movement, the Jesus movement. He's not about that. He's all about going to die on a cross, but he can't avoid it now. 20,000 people just saw him take a couple of loaves and a couple of fish and feed them all with it. And so as one, as this massive crowd, they say this certainly is the prophet who came into the world. And so in response to the sign, they're moving from Jesus, this man, this impressive man, this son of a carpenter who seems to know a lot, to now he's this prophet that Moses had promised who would come as a, as a kind of a forerunner for the great Messiah, the one who would come to make all things right. And so they're starting to twig that there's something about this man beyond just who he appears to be in the flesh. They're a part way there now. They haven't quite got to the Messiah, the Son of God, but they've got this far, the prophet who is to come into the world. So we're going to move really quick. I hope you're... Uh, Staying with me. Uh, This is number five. Walking on water. Sign number five. Walking on water. John chapter 6, and I'll read verse 19 to 24. The disciples caught sight of Jesus walking on the lake, approaching the boat, and they were frightened. No kidding. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat came to the land where they had been heading. The next day, the crowd, that's the crowd that got fed by him, Uh, that remained on the other side of the lake, realized that only one small boat had been there and that Jesus had not boarded it with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So when the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and came to Capernaum looking for Jesus. So you see this unfolding of the faith of the people in this crowd they're twigging that there's more and more to Jesus than meets the eye. First, he's the prophet. Now they're, they're starting to see, hang on, Jesus didn't get in the boat and go with the disciples. Jesus isn't here anymore. They're going to arrive on the other, lake and, other side of the lake and see Jesus there, do the maths, figure out he can't get there without a boat unless he is able to walk on water. I don't know if they get that to that point because it's ridiculous um, unless he's God and they're not there yet. They subsequently approach him, Jesus weighs their hearts and says, listen, you're coming after me not because you want to follow me as God, but because I fed you. You just want another buffet. Okay, so Jesus is really up front with people, really straight down the line. We saw last week there's no fine print with Jesus. He's not just trying to get as many Twitter followers as possible, right? He's just straight up and down with everyone. As he is with you this morning, you can follow him to death on the cross or you can reject him. He's up for either one. Okay. Um, that being said, this is the same Jesus who weeps over Jerusalem and says to them, if only you would believe, I would gather you together like a mother hen with her chicks. All right? So he's a tough guy, but he knows, he knows what it is to love and the pain of seeing people turn away from him and reject him. Okay? So that needs to be said in all my emphasis of Jesus' toughness. All right? So let's see number five. Uh, what am I saying? What are they called? Sign number five. Sign number six. Jesus healing a, a man blind from birth. This is in chapter nine. 
I'll read verse 35 to 39. Jesus heard that they had thrown him, the man that had been born blind and now is healed, out of the synagogue. This is the Pharisees who had thrown him out. So he found the man and said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's Jesus' favorite title for himself, very similar to Son of God. The man replied, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus told him, You have seen him. He is the one speaking with you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that those who do not see may gain their sight, and the one who sees may become blind. He's talking there not about physical sight in the case of this blind man made to see, but spiritual sight. He has judged the Pharisees who think they can see all spiritual things as being blind to to who he is and what he came for. And this blind man, now ejected from the temple, unable to worship God according to the Jewish religion, he is saying, no, this is the one man who does see. I've opened his eyes. And you notice something very important here that would have been absolutely shocking to the first readers of this gospel. This man who was born blind, who now sees in, in both senses, worships Jesus. You've got to know, Judaism is the most rigidly, um, staunchly, profoundly monotheistic religion that there has ever been. They believe in one God. And right through their history, they to varying degrees of success, resisted the temptation to go into polytheism like everyone else in the world who believed in multiple gods, right? And the Romans, even the Romans who were over them at this point had gods for everything. They had gods for the gutter, gods for the toilet, gods for everything. And in the midst of that, the Jewish people were like, no, there is one God, Yahweh. This man worships Jesus, which is a profound act of betrayal, from a Jewish point of view. And Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 hey, oh, that's going a bit far. I'm not God. No, he accepts his worship. Another thing that you can share with your, the friends that, that come and knock on your door, who say that Jesus wasn't God, who say that Jesus isn't accepting of your worship, that Jesus is embarrassed by you turning up to church and worshipping him. Say, well, this guy did it, and Jesus accepted it. Revelation, Jesus is on the throne, people bowing down and worshipping him. He's not saying, no, no, it's this guy. No, he accepts it. He is worthy of our worship as the lamb who is slain. So, number seven, Lazarus. We're here just a couple of weeks ago. Lazarus being raised from the dead, chapter 11. So we've got this situation where Lazarus is dead by this point. Jesus has come a little late, according to Martha and Mary, uh, Lazarus's sisters. And, and Martha, uh, and Jesus said to Martha, your brother will come back to life again. Martha said, I know that he will come back to life again in the resurrection at the last day, on judgment day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And the one who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She replied, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, 
who comes into the world. Again, no rejection from Jesus. And then Jesus says a little later, verse 41, Father, I thank you that you have listened to me. I knew that you always listened to me, but I said this for the sake of the crowd standing around here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he shouted in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb, a man who'd been dead four days and started to stink as he rotted away. Okay? So all of these signs, John says, have been recorded for us and their purpose is to point us to the truth about who Jesus is. Only God in human flesh could do any of those things that Jesus just did. Recorded by an eyewitness in the company of those who could easily have discredited him if they wanted to, themselves being eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and teaching. But it's interesting that when it comes to the time where Jesus is killed, it's very interesting that though John has written the signs out to show us that Jesus is the Christ, which is a, 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 an act of blasphemy in the Jewish understanding, it's not for the signs that Jesus is condemned to die. It's his words that condemn him. It's his self-revelation that condemns him. And so in chapter 10, we see this uh, that the Jews picked up stones again, they do this all the time, and stoning is the punishment for blasphemy, for saying that you're God. They picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works, miracles from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work or a miracle that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's the issue. That's the issue. So they understand very, very clearly what Jesus is saying about himself. You are saying you are God. You are not God. You are a man. Therefore, we have to kill you according to our law. We have to stone you. So it's not for his miracles, though they point to his divinity. It's for the words that he says. And so we're going to look at those five of those seven words particularly these I am statements that really ticked the Jewish leaders off because they got them. They got their significance. And so, just by introduction, I want to remind you that the theological kind of foundation for these statements that reveals why they're so dang profound, all right? So, Exodus 3, 13 to 14. Remember, God has heard the cries of his people in bondage in Egypt. He wants to get them out of there through the Exodus into the promised land. He appears to Moses in a burning bush and says, you need to go and lead the people out of Israel. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? What's the proof that it's you who have sent me? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That is the most profound self-revelation of God in the entire Bible. The Jews, when that was recorded in the book of Exodus, from that point forward would not utter those words. They wouldn't write them and they wouldn't utter them. 
So they, 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 they did a shorthand version of them, only including the consonants from their uh, Hebrew language, and that's spelled out Y-H-W-H in our transliteration, Yahweh. That's why uh, you'll sometimes hear that word used um, of God. The mistranslation based on bad, uh, based on bad scholarship is Jehovah, um, another little something that you can share with your friends when they knock on the door. It's a bad mistranslation of Yahweh. Okay, That's a whole other sermon. You can look it up. Um, who I am who I am. I am has sent you. In saying that, God is not giving himself a title. God is simply saying, I am. I'm not created. I'm not caused. I am. I am the cause of of all creation. I am the uncaused cause. When little kids or your own kids say, well, if God created everything, who created God? You can say, He just is, I am. He just is. There is never a point where He wasn't. He just is. So that's the background for why these words of Jesus caused such a ruckus in Jerusalem in the first century. Second bit of introduction to tee this up. We'll go to John Chapter 8, verse 58. Do I have this? Yep, okay. So Jesus reveals himself. John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You say that's bad grammar, Jesus. Was that a sin? Does that mean he's not sinless? No, no. He, he's, it's not bad grammar. He's making a very, very clear point that everyone got when he said it. Before Abraham was, right? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the founder of our religion, before he was, I am. I created Abraham. He's not the father of my religion. I am the father of him. I am. And at this point, the Jews pick up rocks and want to kill him. They get it. They get it, and we need to get it too, right? Now that you understand the historical significance, you can't just brush past that and think there was a mistranslation of the Bible somewhere, or Jesus has bad grammar. He went to the wrong school or whatever, right? He's making a massive point, I am. And that sets up the rest of his statements, the next seven statements, I am statements. So let's go through them real quick. Number one, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's in chapter 6. He's about to feed the 5,000. And there he's talking about the fact that only he can satisfy us. Only he can satisfy us in this life and in the life to come. Only he can provide eternal satisfaction. Whoever believes in me shall never Hunger, they shall never thirst. What are the things that you hunger for? What are the things that you thirst for? What are the things that are in the back of your mind right throughout the day, the things that you want, the things that you crave, the things that you feel like you need? Jesus knows that none of those things will satisfy you. We all know this, right? You buy the latest device, you buy the latest seasons, fashions, you buy the latest car, you you get another child, you marry another woman, whatever it is, And none of it delivers. None of it. There is not a single woman or man on earth who will complete you. Jerry Maguire was wrong. He's dumb. All right? It doesn't happen. Nothing completes you. Nothing. 
Jesus says, I will complete you, to use terrible, romantic Hollywood language. He says it a lot better. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, they shall never thirst. Only in Jesus can we find ultimate satisfaction, and that is because he is the great I am. Number two, I am the light of the world. This is in chapter 8 and verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John uses this metaphor of light right throughout. From first chapter to 21st, the light. Jesus is the light. And he uses the metaphor to mean various things, but, but ultimately he's talking about the fact that this light Jesus comes as this light uh, to guide our path to God. Jesus is the one light who will show us who God is. He's the light that casts light on himself to be the divine one, the, the, the God who has come in human flesh. And he also casts light from himself outward to expose our sinfulness and our brokenness, our shame. And so John says the light came into the world, but the world did not receive him because the world jesus says doesn't like to have its sin exposed we we love darkness rather than light because we know that the light will expose us it will expose our shame and our brokenness and our dirtiness and we and we want to cover that up and so we shy away from the light but jesus says i am the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness there will be no shame that you need to fear I will deal with your shame. I'll deal with your brokenness. There won't be any sense that you'll, you'll need to discern your path to God. Christianity as a faith is not about speculation. It's about revelation. You need to hear that loud and clear if you're new this morning. Christianity is not about speculation. It's also not about introspection. It's not about walking around a labyrinth trying to figure out who you really are. It's not about sitting uh, on an island somewhere trying to contemplate who God might be. Christianity is none of those things. It's not about speculation. It's about revelation. The great truth of Christianity is God has made himself known. Finally and fully, you don't need to know anything more about who God is. It has been made clear to you in his word and the person of Jesus fully and perfectly reveals to us who God is. That's the truth. He is the light of of the world. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the door, he says in 10, 7 to 9. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. That is just offensive, right? If you live in the Melbourne that I live in, pluralistic, right? That Jesus is bigoted. Jesus is uh, intolerant. Uh, Jesus is arrogant. He just said, I'm the door. There's no other way. How dare he? And, and honestly, it is. It is the most arrogant thing you could ever say. No one else has said that. No other founder of a religion has said that. 
They've all claimed to be prophets or people who can show you the way or who can reveal to you the way or, you know, God spoke to me and this is what he said. And if you believe this, right? Jesus is the only one who says, no, no, I am the way. I'm not just pointing to the way. I am the way. I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. And so it's the most arrogant, self-centered, narcissistic, insensitive, intolerant thing you could say, unless it's true. So this is why Jesus can't just be a good teacher. Either he's a, right, he's a, I'm trying to think of a word that's not offensive, but I'm not sure there is one. Either he's one of those, or he's who he says he is. That's You've got to choose. I am the bread, I am the light, I am the door, and I am the good shepherd, he says in chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who is He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So Jesus is unlike shepherds that came before him. False teachers, false prophets, um, false leaders of uh, the people of Israel. He is the one good shepherd. Where the other prophets would come to some difficulty, whether it was idol worship or the people turning against them and they would cave and they would lead them astray like Aaron, who while Moses was on the mountain, heard the people say, we want a real God. This one's gone away. And Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. So Aaron goes, all right, let's make a cow. Right? Bad shepherd. Jesus says, I will not cave. I will not lead you astray. In fact, when the wolves come to devour you, I will lay down my life for you. I'm the good shepherd. And that's exactly what he does. A little later he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. Those who say Jesus is just a tragic victim of circumstances. He, he didn't want to die. He was going to live to an old age and be a really you know, wizened old mage. No, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. Alright? So he's the good shepherd. He's also the resurrection and the life. So this is our last one. This is at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus said to her, or a little way off actually, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I am the resurrection and the life. So all of these I am statements, obviously we're not to take them literally. He's not saying I am a piece of like tip-top high fiber. Like he's not saying that. I'm, I'm not literally a door. Um, I was speaking to a guy yesterday, actually, we were talking about the World Cup because it is the greatest time uh, that we can enjoy this side of heaven and um, outside of this worship service, of course. And uh, I've got a couple of friends who feel the same way. And I've got one friend who, who just literally goes insane when the World Cup is on. He takes a full month off work for the lead-up and so kind of recovery afterwards. And, we're, and I was talking to him, and he said this to me. I was saying, yeah, I love the World Cup, but I haven't really watched much of many of the games, you know. And he said, 
You should be ashamed of yourself. And then he said these words, I am the World Cup. Right? I am the World Cup. Now, it never occurred to me that he was saying, I am like a, a foot tall gold statue. Right? He's not saying that he literally is the World Cup. He's, you know what he's saying? He's saying, I, my, who I am is so entwined with what the World Cup is, what it stands for, what it represents, that I am the World Cup. I just had this flashback, and this happens to me sometimes, it's really weird, but I remember um, learning in European history that, um, oh, this is going to make me look like a real nerd, but I remember in... Um, I think it was in French Canada, there was all of this craziness going on. I think it was 30, 40 years ago, you can correct me, but there was this craziness going on in Canada because France had once again capitulated and it looked like they were going to collapse and it was just another French debacle. And so French Canada was getting all upset about it because they were doing okay, but they've got these ties. And so the French president, I can't can't remember his name, but he went to Canada and and someone asked him in his first press press conference... um, uh, something like, um, uh, what, what will become of the French state? What, what becomes now of the French state? Right? It's in, a, it's in a mess. What becomes now of the French state? And the, the president replied, I am the state. He was, a, he was a real, strong, almost dictatorial leader. And so his response encapsulated his level of power. I am the state. Right? You might see things crumbling around us, but I am the state. As long as I'm here, we will not fall. And so Jesus, in saying this, I am these things, is saying, I am so entwined with these things. The way, the truth, the life, the light, the bread of satisfaction, the resurrection, eternal life, that is so much part of my character that I can say, I am these things. Have faith in me and you will have them. So he says it with absolute authority. And it's for this that he is betrayed, arrested, tried, acquitted, retried, abused, thrashed, and crucified. It's for these statements that he pays with his life. And so all of this, John says, should lead us Ask the question, who is Jesus? And that's what I'm going to leave us with this morning. Each of you has to answer that question for yourselves now. I talked to my little brother recently and I said, you know, I really think that you need to ask this question, who is Jesus? He's not not a believer. I really think it's important for you to ask this question. And his response was, I'm going to live my life. I'm going to make money. I'm going to buy my toys I'm going to have fun and I'll work that out later. But if, if anything, if we know anything about the nature of the gospel is that it is absolutely profoundly important that you answer this question now as it is presented to you. If you go out on the road today and get hit by a bus, you will have no excuse for rejecting Jesus. You'll have no excuse for putting it off till some later date when you can be an old man Christian. All right? You have no excuse. The truth has been presented very, very clearly for you. Now you either receive 
or you reject. You either receive or you reject. I'm going to pray now and ask that God would work in our hearts to enable us to receive this truth because without Him, we have no hope. Let's pray. Father, it's been a bit of a whirlwind this morning going through um, this um, first half of this great gospel. But we thank you for your servant, John. We thank you for his long life of servants in Jesus' name. Uh, We thank you that he recorded these things for us clearly and plainly from an eyewitness perspective. I pray that you would give us the faith to believe these words and that through believing, you would give us life in Jesus' name. And I pray for those people this morning who are putting it off, who are unsure, who are sitting on the fence. Lord, please give them the faith to believe Jesus, to believe who He says He is. That He's not a pile of bones somewhere in the Middle East, but that He is the living, risen, ruling, reigning God of the universe. And that He has mercifully, sacrificially done everything that needs to be done to reconcile us to Himself. And so we praise You for this good news. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you for that. Um, Gino's got a mic. We're going we're gonna to try this out. Um, Pete's going to be on standby if I, uh, <laughs> right, if I need some help. Okay, so questions, particularly from the Gospel of John or something um, tied to what we've been talking about. Yes. So, John, um, whoa. <laughs> I've really enjoyed this uh, whole uh, series of sermons. It's been great, and we've got huge value out of it in our growth groups. But I still have two questions kind of hanging, which I'd like you to talk about today. First one is... Um, let's imagine that, that I was to go to India <clears throat> and I was to live for a couple of months in the slums in abject poverty. Uh, I would certainly have an appreciation of what their lives are like, but could I really say that I really know what the poverty of their condition is? I mean, after all, I know that I'm, I live as a relatively rich man compar- comparatively, and I know that I'm going to go back to Australia could I really say that I know and understand what the poverty of their human condition is? And maybe that's a churlish question, but it kind of hangs in my mind that does Jesus really, really know? Because he, he knows who he is. He knows that he's God, and he, he's not really experiencing things as I do. That's my first question. The second one is that we know that God is love, and Jesus is God, and, we should, and he impeaches us to uh, love one another and love a neighbour and so on. We should live our lives in love. And then he says this really strange thing. He says, <clears throat> unless you hate the world, you cannot, you will, you will not, you know, you won't gain the eternal life. And it's such a strong word that I struggle with it. So I'd like you to comment on that as well. Yeah, good. Um, it's, I, I really like the illustration that helps me with that illustration of going to India. Can you really um, understand their plight, and, and in that sense, can Jesus really know what it's like for us? I think, first of all, we trust that He does know what it's like for us because His Word tells us that He does. So, uh, the writer to the Hebrews says that He is He's able to uh, understand all of our weaknesses because He has come uh, to this world. He, so he, he knows both uh, what it's like to be a human, but He even knows what it's like to be tempted as we're tempted. 
So beyond even just being with us, he, though he's God in human flesh, was tempted in the same ways that we're tempted. Tempted sexually. Tempted to get drunk. Temp, right? Tempted in every way that we are. You think about that. He's tempted. He didn't sin, but he experienced that temptation. So he does, he does condescend even to that level of, of experiencing that kind of temptation. Um, Philippians chapter 2 is a really important chapter in understanding this condescension of God in human flesh as well. It's probably the first Christian hymn that was ever written where um, Paul writes to the Philippians that we should have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus who, though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped or something to be leveraged or taken advantage of, but um, taking the form of a servant entering into human history, he, he uh, emptied himself. And that emptying of himself is a really profound theological point. Not that he emptied himself of his divinity, because we know he was fully God and fully mad, but that he emptied himself of all of his privilege as God. His, the, the kind of privilege that, um, that would make his experience of human life less than what we experience. And so you see throughout, there are times when Jesus doesn't know something that's going to happen. He says himself that he, he doesn't know when he's going to return, only the Father in heaven knows. Or, or where he gets hungry or tired. or you know, These things happen to Jesus that reveal that he has emptied himself of the things that would keep him from thoroughly experiencing what we experience. And so, though he is fully God and fully man, he is at the same time fully in touch, in, engaged with our experience. So I think you can read the Gospels and say, here, Jesus really is feeling these emotions that I would be feeling in this situation. The emotions of rejection as all of his disciples run away as he's arrested. The feeling of rejection as Peter denies him three times as he, on, as he watches on. You know, the, the feeling of hunger as he, as he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. The feeling of temptation as Satan squares up to him. Or, or as he sees a pretty girl or, or whatever. These things that he did, he did experience. Um, I think we can trust that he really does know what it's like to be us. And, and the writer of the Hebrews says that this is why you can go to him with your sin. He knows and he can forgive. And the other question about, um, what was it about? Oh, God, God, God is love. Jesus is God. Um, he says to hate. I, I, I think the translators are right to translate it hate because that is the, the strong sense of the word. And in English, the most most profound sense of dislike that we have is hatred, right? Um, but it's a little bit more complex in the original language, both in the Greek and the Hebrew. So in the Hebrew, God will say things like, uh, of the two twins, um, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, in that case, Jesus isn't saying he hates Esau in any sense that God could hate anyone in the sense that we understand, but it, there's a profound preference and, and, a, um, and a, uh, um, a preference that has consequences in choosing uh, Jacob over Esau. Um, you see the same in God's preference of the elect, and we might get into this again, over the rest of the world. We know that God so loved the world, all people, that he gave his only son, but there is a sense in which he has effectual love for those whom he has chosen, the elect. And so, in that sense, God loves and hates, but it is in the sense of choosing one over the other. So when Jesus says, you ought to love God and hate the world, he says, you ought to have a profound 
preference for God over the things of this world. Jesus says, if you don't love, if you don't hate your mother and father, right? He's not saying you should hate your mother and father because he tells us elsewhere that you must love mother and father. It's one of the commandments that he doesn't contradict in any way. But it's just the sense of, of dissonance between those two loves. Love your mum and dad, love the world, but have such a greater love, such a functionally, amazingly greater love that it seems like love and hate by comparison. Does that make sense? I think that's what the sense of the word is getting at. All right, let's keep going. I've ha- I need more um, energy drink. In the Old Testament, it says that people died and they would be resurrected on the last day. Um, Jesus said to the thief, today you will be in heaven with me. I'm confused about the people today who don't believe in Jesus. Are they going to be buried and resurrected on the last day? Yeah, um, yeah good question. I just, I just can't relate the two. Yeah. yeah, really good question. So this is the question of what's known as the intermediate state, and it's within the kind of rubric of eschatology, if you want to... A fancy word. It just means the end times. What happens at the end times? And this is sort of individual eschatology. What happens to each one of us in the end? And, um, and your question is particularly about what's called the intermediate state between when we die and Jesus returns. Okay, so the, the chapter you want to go to for this is uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And this is where Paul talks a lot about the resurrection. And he uses a lot of language that is hard for us to grasp, but essentially he's saying... Uh, when people die, they, they are buried in the case of every Jew that's ever lived. Perhaps for us, they're burned, maybe you're lost at sea and eaten by a shark, or however it happens, you die. And uh, from there, you go to an intermediate state. Here's where the, I think the JWs will talk about soul sleep. Um, I think some Christian um, subsets will believe in that as well, that you essentially go unconscious. I think the biblical doctrine is that you go to a conscious intermediate state where you are without a body. So that's why Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Or where Paul says, I think it's in Philippians chapter 1, um, t- to be away from the body is to be with the Lord. And that is far better. So he's saying it's better to be away from the body and with the Lord. That is the, in the intermediate state. It would be better for me to die. I think I'm probably going to get killed and that's going to be better. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Now die is gain is only gain if we're with Jesus consciously, to be asleep isn't any gain. Um, and so I think from death, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, and I'm sorry this is just very quick, you go into an intermediate state. Believers will be in paradise with Jesus, just as he said it for the thief on the cross. Unbelievers will go to a similar disembodied conscious state awaiting their judgment and condemnation. There's no way back from here. It's not purgatory. It's not limbo. This is just a holding place, waiting for the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, when Jesus comes, a trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. That which is perishable will take on imperishability. Um, and so, and so uh, at that point, 
everyone uh, will be given a resurrection body. First for those who have died before us, then for those who are on earth when it happens. Here's where it gets into many, many different beliefs about the sequence of these events. I believe it just happens all at once. Jesus comes, everything happens at once. uh, And he gives resurrection bodies to believers to enjoy his presence forever in a recreated heaven and earth, the new heavens and the new earth. We will have bodies, we will experience uh, eating, drinking, creation, right, all around us in an imperishable, um, unfading, unbreakable, unsinnable, uh, undying creation, both ourselves and, and that's heaven, worshipping Jesus for his goodness. Those who rejected him will receive their resurrection body, which will, which will experience uh, eternal, conscious torment and condemnation at the hand of God forever, in the body. And so this is where you need to come to terms with what I believe is the plain reading of Scripture, that that, that is what happens. And we can shy away from it and we can make it less, less than that. We can say with some that, that, no, they just cease to be or that it's just uh, you know, out of God's presence. But no, it's under the present judgment of God in the body. If you're on our Facebook page, I posted this week, George Whitfield, who said, who just with tears in his eyes thought of the fate of those who will burn like a livid coal for millions and millions of ages in torment, at the end of which they will realize that they are no nearer the end than when they first began. That is utterly heartbreaking and it makes me tremble to think about it. But that's... That's the picture that Scripture gives us. So, death. So, my mum died in 89. I believe from then till now, she is in God's presence, in paradise, having a great time. Uh, I don't think she's looking down on me. My dad and I argue about this all the time. I just don't think she's that bothered about what's happening here. She's got Jesus, right? This is incredible. The only thing she's lacking is the body so that she can experience fuller joy in Him. And I believe in Revelation, that's why those who are gathered around the throne say, how long, O Lord? How long, how long? We, we, we want our bodies. We want this experience forever. Okay? So that's a snapshot. Um, intermediate state if you want to do more reading. 1 Corinthians 15. Yes. Um, I know that Jehovah's Witnesses, one of their arguments about against God's uh, Jesus' divinity or yeah. that he's God is one of the things that you stated about um, how, um, oh yeah, that Jesus himself doesn't know like when he's coming back and all that kind of stuff, that only mm. the Father does. So, And I've never known how to argue that with the Jehovah's Witness. So how may you argue that? Yeah, that's good. I, I just think it, it's, a, it's a, just a demonstration of what we believe about Jesus, that he's fully God and fully man, and that he emptied himself... So when Paul says he didn't take advantage of, he didn't leverage, he didn't see his divinity as something to be grasped or, or to be taken advantage of. So Jesus isn't born and then from, from the first day he's born knows the theory of relativity. He just doesn't, right? He, he, he doesn't have divine knowledge from the get-go. The Bible clearly says that he grows in wisdom and understanding. It said at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, I believe. So he grows as he goes. And he, he, perhaps he doesn't know exactly 
his mission until somewhere along the line that the Bible doesn't care to, to, give, to identify particularly. But, but we, we, we don't believe as Christians that Jesus, um, though he's born, you know, Jesus lauded his birth, Silent Night says, and it's true, he's God from birth, but he doesn't have God-like knowledge from the beginning. He doesn't, he don't, he, he, that's not the way it works out. He very much lives as a human being and experiences the things that we experience, learning and so on. So I don't think that's a contradiction. It's just evidence of what Paul says in Philippians 2. He empties himself to identify with us. Jonah, thanks for the series, mate. We've learned heaps through it. And in in our uh, growth groups, we've had a lot, a lot of really cool discussions. Um, One of the topics, and I did post it on the Facebook page, is predestination. It's come up time and time and time again in the first 12 chapters of John. Um, As a growth group leader, I've seen people in our group change their minds you know, sometimes a couple of times, which is great. That's a, that's a whole idea of a growth group. Yeah. Um, but we, I think as a group, we still haven't reached a consensus as to how we should perhaps look at predestination and yeah. the implications thereof. If you just want to do a quick recap, that would be great. Sorry. No, no. Um, but, I do, yeah, I do want to speak to it because I, I got a few um, emails about this as well uh, from people who, who didn't want to stand up and speak. But... I think we should take this as the last question. I'm just very aware of the time. And just say that um, on our Facebook page or in the group, you can, um, you can write questions and I'll try and get to them or email us uh, or see me afterwards. But this is something, that, is, that's something um, that a lot of Christians struggle with, and it's particularly when they come to the Gospel of John. Uh, because John Calvin, who's seen for some reason as the guy who invented this, said in response to that accusation, he just read the Gospel of John. Uh, that's where he saw these doctrines of grace, as he called them. This doctrine of election and predestination and so on. Um, the, the understanding is, just to put a very cursory um, explanation forward, is that, um, is that before the foundation, foundation of the world, as it says in Ephesians 1, God chooses for himself everyone who will believe in him. Uh, everyone, he, he sets them aside as those who will come to faith in Jesus and inherit eternal life. Um, And so this um, causes trouble for a lot of people because they see it as robbing us of of our kind of ability to decide for ourselves whether Jesus is who he says he was. Um, And so the question came to me in this form, and this, this might just narrow it down from the general issue of predestination to something a little bit more um, where people are thinking. And so the question a lot of people, the way a lot of people frame it is, um, do we have free will to choose Jesus? That really narrows it down, right? Not just the philosophical question, do we have free will to eat McDonald's over KFC, right? But this, the question is, do we have free will to choose Jesus? And I think that the message of Scripture from first to last is that we don't. We don't. Now, this is, this is another way of reframing that question that might make it a more, bit more clear. And I think everyone who believes either way would, would see this as the real question. The question is, who has ultimate, decisive agency in whether I believe or not? Who has the ultimate say in whether I'm a Christian or not? Is it me or is it God? That's really what it's about. The question of, 
election over uh, you know, free will, the question over can we choose God or not. The, the, ult- the thing is, who ultimately decides? So if someone says to you, why are you a Christian? Do you answer, God saved me? Or do you answer, I chose to follow Jesus? That's the question. Uh, likewise, when you get to heaven, if, if God says, why are you here? Are you going to say, Jesus took me as a, a brand out of the burning? Or are you going to say, I, I chose to follow Jesus? That's the question. And I think Scripture is really, really clear that you do not have the ultimate say over whether you become a Christian or not, whether you follow Jesus or not. Notice the question isn't, do you choose? Everyone believes that you choose. Everyone believes that, you, that you, uh, there is an action of the will in choosing to follow Jesus. Yes, you did say, I believe. The question isn't whether you make a choice. The question is, who is the ultimate decider of whether you make that decision and see it through to eternity. Um, and I think Jesus, and, and you're going to see this right through Paul's letters where he really talks about this a lot in, in the book of Romans, Ephesians, uh, just about every book he writes, he talks about this. But you're going to see it from Jesus' own lips in the book of John, in the gospel of John. So just, just, just a, little, um, a, a little bit comes to mind. So maybe in, um, in John chapter 6, He says, uh, okay, John 6, 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I think that's the right ordering of things, right? So whoever, all, all that the Father gives, so the Father knows there, the, the number has been determined by him, and all of them will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So there's the agency of God preceding your response, and then there is your agency in coming to Him. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me. So there is a coming to Him that we exercise. There is a walking, there is a willing, there is a a choosing that we do, but it's in response to God's, God's action that happens first. We love Him because He first loved us. We respond to what God has done before the foundation of the world in our coming to Jesus. And then a little bit later in, uh, I think it's verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. There is no sense in Jesus' theology that you can come to God without God first enabling you to come to him. No one comes to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And so Paul will write in Ephesians 1 and 2 that we are dead in transgressions and sins. We are like Lazarus in the tomb spiritually. We cannot just roll over, tear off the strips and walk out to God. No, Jesus has to call us out of the grave. The effectual calling of God precedes our willing to follow him. Paul explains our will in relation to God's will by saying, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who wills in you what is pleasing in his sight. So yes, you do, you respond, you follow, just knowing that God is the one who has enabled you to will and to choose. So I think 
that, that un- either way that you go, I'm not saying you're a Christian or not a Christian, but that will profoundly, perhaps more than anything else, determine how you view God and how you worship God. And I think that if you end up saying that I have ultimate determination of self, you are less likely to worship God the way that he has designed you to worship him. To be utterly just just overwhelmed by his grace. Because a part of you is going to say, this was not an unconditional act on my behalf. This was me and him working together. I think in the reformed understanding as it's known, all glory goes to God. We were dead in the tomb and he raised us up. All right? That's a, that's a very, surface, um, very surface understanding and you can delve very, very deeply. There are all kinds of questions that get raised in response to that. Um, but I think that's... Um, that's oh, I just had a really good thought, but I'm not going to go there. All right. Yes. So I think we're done. Um, um, oh, Sandra's got one. Who votes that Sandra should ask another question? Me, and I've got a microphone. All right, so th- this really is, this is going to be our last question, okay? And then we'll, we'll uh, get through the rest of the service. Thank you. Um, I just had a thought when you were speaking. Um, does that then mean that God chose, um, sorry, just, yeah, that God chose to create humans just to go to hell then? Like how... Do we reconcile that? Because obviously God is just and good and... Yeah. 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 Yeah, so, do, so does God just create people that he knows are going to go to hell? Um, another way of framing it might be, how, why would God keep people accountable for something they had no power over? Um, that, w- that was actually John Calvin's view that the, in what's called double predestination, God not only elects some to be saved, but he elects some to be damned. I don't think the scripture goes that far. So I think he does uh, elect those who be saved. But the understanding is that everyone who's ever lived is on the way to hell. God elects some of those out of that path that they're already on. The question of how can he keep us accountable um, is answered by scripture just by saying they are. Okay? And then Paul will interact with this in Romans 9. Uh, he does sort of a question and answer with himself. And, and he says, how does God keep people accountable then? And his answer is, who are you? to talk back to God, right? Not a very satisfying answer. But here's one illustration that might just help us. If I'm saying that we're unable to choose God, if we're dead in the grave and there's no way of us being able to to respond to him, how does God still keep us accountable? I think we need to have in our minds two kinds of inability. This is the last thing I say, I promise. But everyone just look at me now because this is important. Two kinds of inability. Um, You need to imagine two guys lying down on the ground. And, and I come up to them and I say, get up. Now, both of them are unable to get up. One of them is a paraplegic, a quadriplegic. He's unable to get up and he can't be held accountable for not getting up. He's got, there's no way. The other one just loves being on the ground so much. It's just so committed to being on the ground and enjoys being on the ground so much more than being standing that he is unable to get up. He's never going to get up. That's the kind of inability that we have to respond to Jesus. In our flesh, we so, so love sin. We so love ourselves. 
We're so committed to our own agency, our own divinity, our own godness, that we will never respond to God. That's the inability that we're talking about. If it was this, God couldn't hold us accountable. But because it's this, everyone deserves the judgment that they get, and ultimately, everyone gets what they want. The guy who stays on the ground because he loves it so much gets what he wants when he stays on the ground for the rest of his life. And those who go to eternal damnation get exactly what their heart so desired. Life and life eternal without God. Without God's favor, without his love, without his rule over them. So that, I think that's a very important distinction that saves us from seeing God as some kind of you know, um, sadomasochist or something that just loves slaughtering people. Our inability is ours to own, and we need to own it, and we will own it unless we turn. So if you're here this morning, and you're despairing of your faith, and you're fearing the condemnation of hell, and you know that you're unable to respond to him, then the doctrine of predestination and election is the most comforting thing you can hear. Because you are unable, but God is fully able to do everything that needs to be done to save you. There is no participation required of you, and so therefore you can say, God, save me, I am a sinner. And he says, as Jesus says in what we just read, chapter 6, everyone who comes to me, I will not cast out. All right? He'll never cast you out. I think we're done. That's 21 weeks. Um, Hopefully it whets your appetite for January next year where we pick it up again, uh, looking at the last week of Jesus' life. Um, And uh, I don't know, I think we should just pray just to finish, okay? Are all the kids back in with us now? If not, can someone go and get the kids for us out of of their program and we'll, we'll come back together. Father, we thank you for this journey through 21 weeks. We thank you for Jesus, for his sovereignty, for his sacrifice. We thank you this morning that we can pray to you and worship you as the, the sovereign God who is not limited by us, who is not limited by our agency, our choices, or anything else. You are all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing. We thank you so much. We remember Jesus' words that no one can snatch us out of your hand, that we are safe and secure now because you are the king of the universe. And so we praise you for this and pray that it would lead us to worship in spirit and truth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Anglican Church Caroline Springs podcast. For more information, go to taccs.org.au.